Welcome to the Plain Faith Podcast, Episode 4. I thought, I will never do that because you got to wear khaki pants and tilly hats and, and kind of fit the stereotype and you're, you might get eaten by cannibals. The Plain Faith Podcast is a podcast about missionary aviation and the stories of missionary aviators who have taken seriously Jesus' command to go and make disciples of all nations and are using airplanes to be His witnesses at the ends of the earth. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Your host for today's show will be Jimmy Tidmore, who, in addition to hosting this podcast, is a pastor and a pilot residing with his family in what is known as the Rocket City, Huntsville, Alabama. He is very interested in promoting missionary aviation and helping prospective missionary pilots reach the mission field. And now, with these introductions out of the way, let's get started on another great episode of the Plain Faith Podcast. Welcome to the Plain Faith Podcast. My name is Jimmy Tidmore, and in today's episode, we will be hearing from Marcel Bowers, an aircraft maintenance engineer who serves in Angola with his wife and his young son. I am excited to hear his story today, and I hope you are as well. Well, Marcel, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Plain Faith Podcast. I'm very excited to hear your story and have you share about your adventures there in Angola and the adventure of how you arrived there in the first place, including how you developed a passion for aviation and how your training to become an aircraft maintenance engineer unfolded. So thank you again for being with us today on the podcast. We look forward to hearing from you. No problem. My pleasure. All right. Well, why don't we just begin by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. For example, where are you from? Where did you grow up and about your family and, and so forth? Yeah, I'm, my name's Marcel, and I grew up in southern Ontario, Canada, uh, on a little hobby farm. Uh, was homeschooled till I was in grade eight, so that hobby farm was a big part of my childhood, where we spent a lot of our time outdoors. With uh, we we had horses and cows for a bit, and chickens, ducks, and rabbits. Uh, I went to a Christian high school, and uh, as a kid, developed a, a passion for aviation. Uh, living about a five-minute drive from an international airport and always seeing airplanes flying over. And and it was a small enough airport as well where they would host a, an annual air show where I think Blue Angels came a couple times and Thunderbirds and the Canadian Snowbirds. So I think my passion for aviation definitely came out of uh, that air show, though. And, and so would you say that your, your, your passion for aviation then preceded your call to missions? Absolutely, yeah. When I was young, I remember going to a, a missions conference in Toronto with my parents and uh, seeing an MAF booth. At that time, this was pre-internet, so I grabbed as many calendars and pamphlets and brochures as I could so I could cut out the pictures of the airplanes and put them on my wall in my bedroom. So I, I'd always heard of Mission Aviation Fellowship or, or Mission Aviation, but it was always something that I thought, I will never do that because you got to wear khaki pants and tilly hats and, and kind of fit the stereotype and you're, you might get eaten by cannibals. And I'm not really sure where those ideas came from, but uh, that's what I had. And, and that's what, as a kid, I said, I, I will never do that. 
So, so you, you were at this missions conference and you come across this Mission Aviation Fellowship booth and they have all these handouts and so forth and you take them home, but it's not really about the mission stuff as much as it is you just want to hang airplanes up on your wall. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I'm, like I grew up in a Christian home and identified myself as a Christian, have all my life, but at that time missions was definitely off the radar. Very good. So you're passionate about aviation as a kid. You live near an airport, see airplanes taking off uh, and, and landing. And then later on comes your your call to, to missions. Why don't you tell us about how that took place? How did you transition from being someone who's a Christian, being someone who's passionate about aviation to saying, hey, I would like to be a part of missionary aviation at, at some faraway part of, of the world? Yeah, it, it's an interesting story personally to look back on and see where God's brought me. I think it definitely started with that missions conference and, and finding out what MAF was because throughout my life up until joining MAF, it was something that I felt a little bit like Jonah where it's like, God's calling me here, but I kind of want to do what I want over in this area. So that developed a lot by numerous times where MAF would just keep popping up in random places. And, and it wasn't like it was mission aviation that kept popping up. It was always MAF where yeah, I'd end up seeing them at another conference uh, somewhere. And then I remember my dad, he came to visit me while, while I was in college. And he said, oh, check out this DVD I got. It's of this organization where they land on grass and dirt airstrips all around the world. And I thought, oh, it's definitely going to be MAF. And sure enough, it was. And while I was in college doing uh, tech school for aircraft maintenance, uh, my focus at that time was just I wanted to get a decent job, do my 40 hours a week and be home every night with my family that's kind of where pilot got ruled out of it. And uh, I enjoy working with my hands as well. So maintenance kind of seemed like the thing that was suitable for me. And when I met who is now my wife, one of the first things she told me was that if this relationship is going to work out, then we're going to travel. And initially I just thought, well, you know, like to the Caribbean, I like to travel. You can go to Jamaica or Mexico for a week and have a holiday and she she told she kind of shook her head like no 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 like we're gonna go move somewhere for a year or maybe two years and so I thought well I, I guess I really liked her so I thought sure we'll we'll see how this goes and shortly after we well, I guess a year after we started dating part of the major steps that led me to reconsidering mission aviation was Urbana conference in St. Louis that was 2009 we went and I, I pretty much went because my wife told me she was going and I saw it as a good opportunity to spend a week with her. We were doing long distance dating for the first couple of years. But it was at this conference where I, we, there's a huge room where they have hundreds of different organizations got their displays set up. And I saw MAF there and I did a hard left and walked away from it because I knew if my wife well, my girlfriend at the time saw it, then she'd tell me to go talk to them. And Sure enough, uh, I think it was like the next day we were walking through that room again, and she noticed it and told me to go talk to the people over there because there's airplanes over there. So sort of to appease her, I, I did that, thinking I knew all about what MAF was about. Talking with a guy, I learned that mission aviators, they don't just live in the jungle and wear tilly hats and khaki pants. They actually live in real houses and eat real food and have TV and just all these things that I thought were just not at all what my expectations were. And 
I, I think that's where the idea first started in my head that uh, maybe maybe this is something we could do. And it kind of fell in line with what uh, my wife was saying, where we're going to travel, where over the next couple of years, we kept kind of pushing each other a little bit further that, oh, maybe, maybe we're going to move to a crazier country than we thought. Maybe we're going to go for longer than we thought. And at, at the end of that, the only thing left was missions. I had another friend who, who worked halfway around the world for a year, and it was something I thought I might do. And in talking with him, he was saying how he was making less money, getting a great experience, but coming home not any further ahead. And I thought, well, that, if we're going to do this, I want to make sure this is purposeful and meaningful. And I didn't see any anything greater than doing missions work. And you know, the, the, I think the other stereotype I had with missions was that you had to be a pastor and or an evangelist. And finding out through MAF that, you know, I have these skills where I can fix airplanes and I can use that to the kingdom of God, then um, I felt strongly that that was something I needed to do. So to summarize, you would say that the, the first seed was planted for missions at that missions conference that you went to with your parents as a child where you first saw this this MAF booth and then MAF kept popping up throughout your life along the way and it was always sort of MAF. Uh, you meet a, a young lady who would become your wife. She tells you that she wants to travel. You do this uh, conference, to this Urbana conference together. MAF's there again and you try to run from it a little bit but you eventually uh, make your way uh, to that booth and, and have a conversation and, and, and learn maybe that your uh, stereotypes about missionaries weren't completely true and that you could use the skills that you had in life as an aircraft maintenance engineer to the glory of God. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Then you thought about, well, if we're going to go overseas, we might as well go for a reason that matters. Right. Yeah, and I think um, back to that previous question regarding MAF popping up um, is absolutely right. And it always seemed to happen at the most random moments. So when when we did uh, decide that missions was something we were going to do, we, we had checked out a few other organizations, which are all good. But because it was always MAF that kept coming back to me, that was one of the main reasons why we eventually went with them. I do want to come back to the whole process with you starting to talk with math very seriously and how that interview process went and the application process went. I want to come back to that uh, later. But before we get there, let me let me hit on a couple of other things. Sure. First of all, having having had you describe this process of realizing, hey, I'm called to missions and we're going to go do missions work without having a whole lot of clarity yet. I wonder if you could give some advice to our listeners, maybe someone out there who is right now wrestling with a call to missions. I was wondering if there's any way you could help them think through that process. I think two things in hindsight, looking back now, one is don't rush learning everything you can about the culture if you feel called to a specific culture. And that includes language as well. It makes a transition so much easier if you're prepared for what you're going into. I, Language is such a difficult barrier to get over unless you're truly gifted at learning another language, which I'm definitely not, but uh, it's coming along here. And I think another uh, more broad thing, if you're considering missions, is that whatever's holding you back from getting involved, know that God is bigger than that. If it's finances or distance 
or, or even language. God is a whole lot bigger than that. And if he's calling you to a specific area or maybe not specific area, just a call into missions, he won't let you down. There's definitely going to be bumps and trials along the way, but if it's something that is furthering his kingdom, you can have faith that he will carry you through it. All right. Very good. That has to be encouraging to to someone out there who may be wrestling with, is God leading me in this direction and can I really persevere and, and do this? Let's transition now to talk about your aircraft maintenance engineer training. Where did you do that training? What did it entail? How long did it take and so forth? Yeah, in Canada, Transport Canada is the uh, governing authority. So there's various tech schools you can go to. Some of them, I guess most of them are Transport Canada approved. So when you do your two-year tech school, that does give you credit towards your apprenticeship. I went to Canador College in North Bay, Ontario. It's about a three-hour drive north of Toronto fantastic facility. I had a great time there. Learned, learned uh, it is one of the top schools in my opinion, and I'm probably a little biased, but other people say the same thing too. So a uh, little plug for Canada. But um, yeah, I did two years there. That gave me my 19 months towards a 40, oh, what is it now? I think it's a 48-month apprenticeship, four years. So graduated from that, I then was working part-time at a flight school doing maintenance. And in Canada as well, they divide their transport and general aviation into two categories, into two licenses. And the flight school gave me credit towards my M1, which would be general aviation. And uh, a few months after graduating, then I started working for a regional airline part of Air Canada, which was Air Canada Jazz at the time, uh, which was for an M2 license transport category. So I finished my license a few years after graduating. In total, worked there for five years before uh, the base I was working at closed down. At that time was when we were uh, heading into a MAF direction, which uh, transport category license doesn't do you much good. So then I was kind of back into the general aviation world, working for another farmer who had a paint shop in his backyard with a runway in his cornfield. And uh, that was a great experience because I was able to just volunteer my time there for the purpose of getting my license for general aviation as well. The work you were doing was on larger airplanes, and you needed some experience with smaller single engine. That's right. Type of airplanes that you were going to be that you are right now maintaining on on the mission field. Is that right. Correct? Right. Right. Now I, I know that you are also a, a, a private pilot. Yep. Uh, so tell us about that. When and 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 why did you get your your pilot's license? Yeah, that was um, two thousand. Seven. I just finished tech school and had, a, I think, a two or three month window before my summer job was starting. And talking with my dad, he uh, told me that, hey, there's, there happens to be still some money left in the education fund. And all my siblings had gone through their post-secondary education and uh, found out that I was able to apply that to doing some ground school. So I actually did the ground school just as I was finishing tech school and then moved back home and pretty much on a Monday morning headed to the nearby airport, walked in 
to uh, the office, which was actually the same place I'd, I'd done some part-time work before and told them, I want to get my license and I've got two months to do it. And they said, well, yeah, if you got the time, then then I think we can do two to three lessons a day. So went at it hard and got got just to getting my flight test booked before I had to move away again for a summer job. And that's been a quite a beneficial experience. There's been times where I, I've definitely thought, you know, I, I, I think I was considering the potential of a, a pilot mechanic career. Definitely enjoyed the experience, love flying, but in the end felt that maintenance just I wouldn't say that I liked it more, but just felt more called to the the maintenance world. We've talked about your, your passion for aviation. We've talked about your training to become a, a maintenance engineer. Let's transition now to talk about the mission field in, in general. And I, and I would like to begin by hearing about Mission Aviation Fellowship, how that process of getting from, hey, I want to work with you to being on the mission field with them took place. I'd just like to hear about that process. Right. Well, MAF is, um, they're in about 30 different countries around the world and can boast the largest fleet of private aircraft. I think there's like 130 airplanes. I, I could be wrong on that number. But as far as MAF Angola is concerned, we have two Cessna 182s that are SMA diesel engines. So uh, we can put Jet A in, in those things, which is the only fuel we have access to here in Angola. And uh, we also have a Cessna Caravan, which is our workhorse. As far as getting involved with with MAF in the first place, it was kind of an interesting road when I first got into the workforce because working for an airline with great flight benefits, I thought I had it all. Um, was able to fly anywhere in the world for less than 110 bucks round trip. And that was a great oh, perk. Wow. Sometimes I wish I took more advantage of that, but it definitely helped with the long distance relationship at that time, as, as one might understand. So, um, but I, when I did start with them, I thought it was kind of a five-year plan I had that I'd see where it went. And um, seeing where some of the senior guys I was working with were at, they, they all just seemed miserable. And I thought, if I'm here for 20 years or more, am I going to turn out like them? So I thought, well, I'll give this five years. And if I feel God's calling me elsewhere, then I'll see where that goes. And in year number four, we got notice at the base that I was working at that they were going to be closing it down and wanted everyone to transition halfway across the country. And that wasn't really something I was interested in. And, and the, the closing date they gave would be two months after my fifth year with the company. So definitely took that as a sign from God saying, you, you know, you're thinking five years. And so if you're not going to move on from this company, then I'm going to make sure you do. And that timing as well was, I think, when we had, we had just gotten married and were considering that math was the direction we were heading. So as as news of that comes out, when you've got a, when you're working on a hangar floor with 150 other mechanics, everyone's asking, "Oh, what are you going to do? What are you going to do?" And uh, to have just come to that conclusion that, well, I, I think we're going to go into missions, um, definitely took that stress off of, "Oh my goodness, uh, I'm losing my job here," and uh, kind of going, "Well, I think the plan is going to speed up here now because we have to." So what you're saying is you you got this letter from the, the company that you're working with 
says, hey, basically in another year, you can either move across the country or not have a job. And you took that as a, as a sign from God that, hey, now's the time to, to go with MAF and do this thing that, that my wife and I have been, have been thinking about doing. Right. Yeah. And it was a completely peaceful, uh, mentally decision in our minds that everything was just kind of fitting together really well through that whole transition that this just seemed clearly where we were supposed to be going. So what was the, what was the process like then? So you, you contact MAF and, and how does it go from there? How, how does that, that process unfold? It's quite an extensive process. They don't just take anyone off the street. So there's definitely some criteria to meet and uh, several, I think there was four different psychological evaluations we had to go through. And um, yeah, one example of, of, of one of them that always sticks out in my mind is um, on in one evaluation, it was asking uh, you to rank the National Postal Service out of 10. And I have, I to this day have no idea what that has to do with your psyche or your way of thinking. But uh, it, I'm not a psychologist, so uh, I can't answer on that. But uh, there's definitely lots of interviews to go through. Yeah, just for your standard of whether you're prepared to move overseas to what is your abilities uh, technically. Um, and included in that was a week where I had to go to Nampa, Idaho to the MAF US base and do a one-week technical evaluation, which was a, a very good experience. And then from, I believe the tech eval was the last step before we went into a one-week orientation where we were uh, welcomed in as members of MAF. And then, and then after that, you're raising support and so forth, and you get to a certain support level before you can head to the field. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, basically, out of that orientation week was hit the ground running to do ministry partnership support raising. And uh, that was one area I don't think many people really enjoy doing. And for us, we didn't really... We weren't really excited for the idea of going around and asking people for money, but getting through that and looking back, we, we definitely learned a whole lot that it's it's more than just going around and asking people for money. You're inviting people into your ministry, and on top of that, it's not like you're convincing people that they need to give. A lot of people have the conviction already to give to a worthy organization, and it's just you're basically making better friends than you already are with your friends and making new friends and people that have a common interest with you. It just so happens that we have the capacity to move overseas and not everyone does. So it was great to to see people joining us in our ministry financially and in prayer and um it's it's so encouraging when when you host a dessert night or something and you see thousands of dollars coming in and I think with that as well was just more encouragement and confirmation for us that this is what we were supposed to do. If if it wasn't, then the support would not come. I had always heard when I was wrestling with a call to, to pastoral ministry that there's the call from God that you begin to sense. There's the desire that you have within yourself to do it as well. Yeah. But there's also confirmation by the church. And, and if the confirmation by the church is, is not there, then, 
then you should sincerely question the calling. So yes, mm-hmm. I could see how that would be very encouraging mm-hmm. uh, to you to receive that support and and not just the financial support, but the hey, yes, we believe this is what you should go do. Right. Uh, so so yeah, I can understand that. Let's rewind a bit. Tell me about your your wife and you you have a, a young son. I would like to to hear about them and and also I'd like to hear about how your wife played a role in in you feeling called to missions and and how she was feeling called at the same time. And and I believe she was sort of the impetus towards Africa. If you could just elaborate on those things. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. My wife, Kelly, uh, we've been married just over five years now, and we have a two-year-old son, Ethan, and uh, another baby on the way due November. Um, so we're pretty excited about okay, that. Okay, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Um, part of the reason we're excited is it I think will allow us to go home. <laughs> uh, so we're we're looking forward to that as well. But she she first had her fir- uh, her first Africa experience in university. She did a, a one semester exchange to South Africa, and she says that's where she caught the travel bug. And I would probably disagree. I think she had that already. But she definitely caught the Africa bug from that. She came back and was intent on on going back there. And maybe that's why our dating relationship started so well, because she saw I had flight benefits and wanted to go somewhere far. And uh, I'll let her argue her point maybe another time, whether that's true or not. But um, yeah, she came back from that totally on fire for God. She She got involved for... Uh, with a with a church there, and I think was a crucial point in her walk with God and salvation story. So it was kind of always on the on the back burner that one day we'd go to Africa, whether that was just for well, I think primarily just for a visit to see people that uh, she formed relationships with there. And uh, well, to this day we haven't been back there yet, but we have moved to Africa now. As far as her encouragement into missions with that, yeah, like I was saying earlier, where we, she came from that experience and then went into, uh, we went to the Urbana conference, and from there it was kind of a, each of us taking one step further, saying maybe missions is something that uh, is on our plate. Okay, so that, that Urbana conference you were at together, and you would say that played a pivotal role for both of you, uh, agreeing that you were going to do, to do, and this was before you were married, right? Yeah, that was, uh, we had been dating for, I think just over a year at that point. That was 2009. We got married in 2012. All right. But that, that was, that was a a key component in your, both of your calls to the, to the mission field. Yeah, I would say so for sure. It's interesting though, because there it seems like a lot of people, whether it's um, how they got saved or how they got involved with missions, uh, will recount to one specific moment and say, that's when I was called or that's when I heard God's voice. And I don't think for either of us, uh, we have that story. For for both of us, it was it was lots of little things that just kept kind of pushing us forward. And for me, it was it started at Urbana. And it was a good five years of God slowly saying, this is where you are supposed to be. Okay, so it was it was not a Saul on the road to Damascus no. sort of thing. <laughs> it, was, it was a long process 
that this piece comes into place, this piece comes into place, this event happens, you run into the MAF folks again, that sort of thing, and then it becomes clear, hey, God really does want us to go do this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so your wife was really interested in, in Africa, but when you when you come on board with, with MAF, that doesn't necessarily mean you get to choose where you, you want to go, right? No, and uh, they have an open ear that if you feel called to a specific country, then they can work with that. Um, we joined MAF and we're saying we have no call to any country. We just we want to go somewhere where we can be put to use. So throughout our first 10, 11 months of support raising, we couldn't tell people where we were going because we didn't know. So we would just say that we're moving to an airport somewhere. And uh, we, we had a good idea that it was likely Angola because that is the, 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 the program here is the one that MAF Canada runs. So if it wasn't Angola, then it could, be, it could have been anywhere from Papua New Guinea to, to Mongolia. Okay, but that was primarily because you said, send us where you need us. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So just for the sake of any of our listeners who may be thinking about heading to the mission field, maybe talking with MAF, d- did I hear you say that, that you could say, I would prefer this country, I feel called to this particular part of the world? Yeah, if you have that, then um, they'll definitely listen to that. I think if we told them right from the start that, uh, if they were saying possibly Angola and we said, we definitely want to go to Angola, then, um, I mean, as long as there's an opening there, which there definitely was, uh, then that worked out well. But, uh, part of the reason for, for delaying it as well is, um, I guess there's been previous, previous instances where they, they tell a couple, yeah, you're going to go to, uh, the Congo. And if it takes a year of support raising, well, a lot can happen in a year. And maybe by the time the support is raised, then, well, Congo doesn't need a pilot or a mechanic anymore. We actually really need one in Papua New Guinea, which taking that back to some of your supporters who maybe have a heart for Congo, like, well, I, I gave you that money for this and now it's not going there anymore. So there's definitely a reason for the delay in it. Cut to the end of it, you're now in Angola. Tell us a little bit about what it's like and how it is different from your home, what you're used to in Canada, what your wife's used to in Canada, and and about the things that have been difficult to adjust to there. Right. Uh, language definitely is the one for me. Fortunately, my wife is one of those people who can learn a language fairly quickly, uh, possibly because she, she knew French pretty well before coming here. And uh, Angola is a Portuguese-speaking country. So all things considered, I, I think I'm glad that I didn't have to learn a whole new alphabet or that it actually is a written language. So th- there is some positives to it. And the fact that it's a Latin-based language is good coming from English. But yeah, the, Angola, it's, it's kind of a, a different country in that when we found out we were coming here, it's very difficult to find any sort of news or history on it because Angola just doesn't really make the news all that often. And uh, one of the big things that's shaped the culture here today is that there was a civil war uh, that started here in 1975, I think it was, when the Portuguese pulled out and basically told the the other powers that were here saying, the country's yours, take it. 
And those were those groups were four other parties, and uh, basically all fought until 2002 for uh, who would be the ones in charge. And so it's uh, there is an election this year where the president has stated that he is going to step down, and he's been in power since 1975. So oh wow, uh, it'll be interesting to see how things change from uh, one person to the other. Uh, assuming that the same party does stay in power. Other than that, that's uh, kind of the political background on it. Um, and I think that also shapes why MAF is here. MAF has been here since 1989 and over the years has done a variety of different flying. During the war years, it was mostly for uh, the World uh, Food Program, for UN. Uh, they would fly anything from food to uh, they have had regular elections here. And sometimes those flights would involve the bag of votes that needed to go from one county to the next for counting. And since the end of the war, uh, things have, I think, greatly improved here. We've only been here a year and a half, so it, it's hard to to say for sure what some of the changes have been. But hearing stories of what it was like during the war, it, it was a different place. Today... We're in the city of Lubango, and there's a, there's two Western-style grocery stores. There's a, a little mall. There's a theater with five different theater rooms in it and play new release movies that you would see anywhere else in the world. So those are things that we did not really expect, um, but also makes it a whole lot easier to live here when, when those days come up where you just you can't do it. You, you need a little break. And uh, we live on a, on a compound here where we really can't complain. We have great neighbors. A lot of our work is associated with uh, the Christian hospital here, uh, CML, and uh, that's affiliated with Samaritan's Purse. USAID contributed a lot towards it. And so our neighbors are a lot of the doctors that work at that hospital. And um, it's, it's amazing to see how several different missions organizations all work together where there's rural clinics and doctors that that work out in the bush who call us we need to transfer a patient from the bush to the hospital here Um, and primarily our flights are with the fistula foundation which if you don't know anything about that it's basically for women young women typically who had trouble uh, giving birth and usually miscarried and it lasted a couple days where blood circulation things got cut off where uh, they can no longer control how they pee or poop and through that they're outcast from their communities so where MAF plays a role in that is we pick up these patients it's funded by the Fistula Foundation based in the states and we take them to the hospital they have anywhere from one surgery to multiple surgeries over the course of a year and when they go home, some of them are even able to have babies again and are actually welcomed into the, their community. And that's, as I say, the, the fulfilling side of work is when you see those patients go back with smiles on their faces that they're actually welcomed back into their family. Other parts of our work here, we, we fly pastors around for various um, church conferences uh, throughout the country. Um, there's a number of different denominations in Angola. It, and I think it's recognized as uh, like 80% as a, a Christian country. But where the work of the church really needs help uh, from what I've seen is just in developing a good theology here. 
it's it's a mile wide and an inch deep and there's very little resource for many of the churches throughout the country so to be able to come alongside uh, the church and and help out with that is is has been good and uh, something we value because it's working directly with the Angolan pastors it's not just white people coming to save Angola. With that mindset, you're not going to get anywhere. So it sounds like MAF Angola is doing some really important work there, and and I appreciate you sharing those sorts of things uh, with us. I'd like to hear about the sort of work that you do on a daily basis. You you mentioned that you had two Cessna 182s. Tell us about the fleet of aircraft that you're responsible for for maintaining and, and the sorts of things that you have to do to keep them in the air. So these pastors can be transported and these individuals who are needing medical care can receive the care they need. Right. Well, thankfully we have a, a caravan as well, which knock on wood never breaks down and is a tremendous asset to have here having, uh, I think we can put up to 12 seats in it. Whereas the 182 is a, is a one pilot, three passengers, um, mm-hmm. which uh, last year we, we were doing a big refurbishment project on our caravan and we're without it for five to six months. And then one of our 182s went down and by the time decisions are made and parts are ordered, three to four months can go by where we only had one airplane and two pilots. So that was a very hectic season. It's a whole lot nicer to have three airplanes here and we actually have one pilot now due to uh, our one pilot having some visa issues and having to go home for uh, some time. But um, yeah, as far as the the daily work on the airplanes or in the maintenance department in general, I, I've got one Angolan guy that I work with and I report to uh, my boss, Tim, who's based in Calgary, Alberta. And uh, so that kind of uh, sums up our maintenance department, which is small and works for three airplanes. But our, we're typically doing anything from the regular inspections on the airplanes to uh, right now our big project is we need a battery servicing room. So we put our construction hats on and uh, the airplanes, I don't think we've, we have had to do much on them for the last couple months or so. But yeah, it's Africa. There, there's always something to be keeping busy with, whether that is the construction of building a, a new room at the hangar or um, dealing with some minor snags on the aircraft, like, uh, you know, uh, the push-to-talk switch isn't functioning all the time or the 12-volt socket blew a fuse. And uh, so there's always little things like that that are keeping us busy as well. So you've worked on aircraft in Canada. You've worked on aircraft in Angola. What's the difference? I imagine maintaining a fleet of aircraft in Angola has unique challenges, <laughs> just with the availability of parts. And Absolutely. Um, and I was glad when we got here, seeing the parts room, we're actually pretty well stocked. One place I worked at before coming here and telling people that, yeah, I'm going to move, uh, looks like, to Africa. I'm going to go fix airplanes there. They would laugh at me because the complaint in that particular company was that we didn't have resources to do proper work on the airplane. And they say, you're going to move to Africa and you're, it's going to be even worse. And I can honestly say coming here that because it's, it's not a a for-profit mindset here, um, we can focus on safety. And if, if we miss some flights because it's just not safe, it's not the end of the world. Uh, our, 
what helps the program run is not uh, the revenue from those flights. It's from individuals who, who see what's going on here and want to be a part of it. But yeah, definitely parts is our, our biggest issue. Definitely got to give a lot of lead time in order to get stuff here. Um, and the other one example I always use, the other sort of pet peeve I have here is when you just need something simple, it, it was, I needed a five gallon bucket and I just could not find a store that sold a five gallon bucket. I, yeah. I'm used to, in Canada, we have a, a big, uh, big box store called Canadian Tire and it's kind of like a, a Lowe's or a Home, Home Depot and if we had one of those stores here, oh my goodness, we I feel like we'd be so much more productive because you spend half your day sometimes just driving around the city looking for a simple thing like a bucket. Yeah, so if you need a, a five-gallon bucket or a, a sort, certain bit for your drill, it may be, take you a, a month to find it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <Okay>. Otherwise, <laughs> it just goes on the list for uh, uh, Namibia, which is the country to the south, is... Uh, uh, quite often we we take our vacations there and it just turns into a shopping trip. So what would you say is the most exciting part about working in missionary aviation there? Sometimes exciting in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. It's just you really don't know what to expect one day to the next. Um, when we first got involved with MAF, that was one of our questions is what is a typical day? And the answer to our frustration was for as many different programs as we run is however many answers we have. And so mm -hmm. I, I think like a typical day for me is I Monday to Friday, I'm at the hangar and whether that's, you know, doing regular stuff like emails or working on the airplanes or just improving the maintenance department is something that, that we just do here. But it's definitely the exciting in a good way part is when you see these these passengers that uh, we fly in and out from the clinics uh, with smiles on their faces and, yeah, being restored, whether that's in a physical way or in a spiritual way, um, it's it's really cool to see. And on a different level, Angola is a beautiful country uh, with incredible scenery, so it's pretty cool to be able to go for a Sunday drive and there's views that I would, not that I've seen it. I, I, to make a comparison would be a, there's, there's scenes that look like the grand Canyon. There's quite a, there's not a whole lot of tourism in the country of Angola, but uh, there's a large group of us where we like to go camping. So we drive four hours to the beach a couple times a year and the, because there's no tourism and there's tons of beaches, you just drive right on that beach and you pitch your tent. And for the most part, you don't see anyone. And so it's, it's nice to kind of get away from the hustle of, uh, of Angola and go spearfishing for a couple of days sometimes. What would you say is the most difficult part of, of your work there? Culture is a very broad answer, I guess. And, for, for myself, narrowing that down to just language, um, just having to deal with there's uh, lots of police and when they pull you over randomly and you need to talk to them. Um, for the first few months we were here was kind of nerve wracking, especially when the words you do pick up are, I need to keep your truck overnight. And, and this happens to be at a police stop where you're still two hours away from home. 
so th I think that that got my stress level up a little bit. It was just any any long drive anywhere uh, and having to deal with police because inevitably you were going to have to uh, talk to them at some point. Yeah, and, and I think a surprising one for me here was just the adjustment to a new church. And it's um, we we love our church here, and it's it's been good, but it's it's also been difficult at times where because it's in a different language, you don't understand everything all the time. And we came from a church where we were quite involved with the our youth ministries and young adults, and um, to come here and there isn't much of that. There's no nursery. Uh, with our two-year-old son, it's difficult that you got to hold on to him during the service every week. And that's along with the other 15 babies that are in the small room. Um, to get through that has been a bit of a challenge, I would say for sure. Think of a few stories, instances, occurrences that are good memories and, and things that when you're long gone from Angola one day, will stand out to you as, as, hey, we made a difference that day in this way with this person. I think that satisfaction will come out of partially just being able to say that, like, we did it. We, we, this was something that we never thought we would end up doing. And a lot of that has to do with just looking back on, on everything that it took to get here and go, wow, God has been faithful. Um, there's just the relationships that have been built. And, and that's definitely one of the big things we found about Africa is the relationships are everything. So it's challenged us greatly to focus more on that. It's, it's not just about what you do or, and that that's not your identification and who you are. It's, um, it's the people around you that uh, truly are what make the difference. I so appreciate you sharing about the, the work that you're doing there and the story of, of how you got there and, and, and so forth. I would like to ask you, have you had any spiritual struggles since you've been there? Wrestling with church has definitely been a big one and, and finding out that it's not the same thing as it was uh, as our church back home when the sermons kind of revolve around why uh, it's wrong to have three wives. It doesn't, sometimes it feels like it doesn't apply to you. So, um, but, but trying to push through that and see that, you know, church yeah. is more than a Sunday morning sermon, that it's about relationships there as well. And the body of believers and trying to plug into that has been a great challenge for myself, for sure. So tell me about how have your family and your friends and maybe even your your church family back home, how have they been helpful and encouraging to you? Oh, incredibly. It's definitely made it easier that both uh, my family and my wife's family are on board with this. Uh, it, it's not like they're questioning, why did you move halfway around the world when, you know, you, you could have a much better job, but much better paying job in North America. Um, so that encouragement has been good. Our church, uh, most of our supporters come, our individuals uh, at our home church, uh, which is great. And in fact, two of our friends uh, were able to come out here and visit us uh, just last month. And to be able to show them around to see what a, a, the daily grind looks like here and, and now being able to talk with them and uh, not having to give a whole backstory on a situation and to just be able to say, yeah, this was difficult, makes a big difference. 
tell me about your your home church. You said most of your supporters came from there. Do you still maintain close contact with that church? We do, yes. Probably not as much as we would like to, but yeah, it's it's difficult to get fully involved with life here and try and keep a life going back home. Um, that's been a great difficulty as well, but they've been very understanding, uh, all the folks at West London Alliance Church. Yeah, sometimes I think when we probably aren't as regular in our communication, there's there's been several of them who uh, are able to email us or Skype with us, and it's good to catch up uh, that way. And, and we do, I think we do quarterly newsletters as well, so that way all our supporters do get some sort of update from us. That's one way that you keep your supporters, your friends, your family updated with what's going on in, in your life is through the, the newsletters that you send out through MAF. Is that correct? Yeah, that's for sure. Um, yeah, we have a blog as well. Um, Facebook is easy to do. My wife does a good job of making sure that all our supporters are kept updated. Technology really does make it easy to, to update. It's a completely different world than what it was for people 50 years ago on the mission field. Oh, for sure. Yeah. To, to have internet is changes everything. Yeah, I mean, the fact that we're able to have this conversation and record it and so forth with me uh, sitting in Huntsville, Alabama, and you sitting in Angola is, is quite amazing. And, and, it's, and it's, a, it's a tool for the church when it's used in the right way. Yeah, no doubt. So I'm curious, is there someone who's been a mentor to you along the way, whether it's someone with MAF, maybe who's done the, the sort of work that you're doing, or just someone else that you know? I wouldn't say that there's one person who really sticks out along the way. I, I think at, at different stages of life, there was someone who who was kind of there primarily uh, moving over here that kind of shakes things up a bit just because of uh, infrequent contact. But my good close friend, Josh, we, we keep re- regular contact with each other. He's pretty good at calling me on a near weekly basis and just see how I'm doing. One of the pastors at our church, I keep regular contact with him, and he's pretty good at hearing me out on just what's bothering Marcel and not overloading me with information. So, Graham, if you're listening, uh, I thank you. Yeah, and I think within within MAF, we just had a visit from our member care department, which is a husband and wife team, Gary and Doreen Taves, who have... They first got involved with overseas mission aviation 35 years ago and have been based in like 13 different countries. So if anyone has seen it and been there, then they've been a good ear or a good voice uh, to us as well. If you could go back in time and give your younger pre-mission field self some advice, what would it be? Ooh, um, I, I think it'd be don't worry. There's so much in life here that right now can weigh me down. It's it's probably a lot of just my personality that induces it where I feel like I've got to stay busy doing something because everyone else seems like they're busy. And just to, you know, don't worry about uh, how things will work out as much as you do. When When you've got as little control over situations, like way less than you think you do, then... To worry about it is, is to tell God that you don't think he's big enough to deal with it. So, yeah, that, that'd probably be the one thing I'd tell myself earlier. 
I imagine that there's many folks out there that that's, that would be good advice for, not just folks headed to the mission field, but for all of us, including a guy on the other end of the line uh, from you right now. <laughs> now l- let me ask you this. Is there a, a book that you would recommend, something that helped you in your path to where you are now, or just in your Christian walk in general? Is there something you would recommend to the audience? Yeah, there was... A couple that uh, impacted me at a couple stages. When I when I was first, I think I was fresh out of school at this point. I, I read Jim Elliott's uh, biography, and that impacted me in a way. I, I think that was one of those times where math popped up at a random spot where I found out yeah. that they they had flown him along with the other men in, uh, in Ecuador, and. And just hearing about his passion for the gospel and just furthering the kingdom that uh, to the point where life didn't even matter uh, was a big challenge to me. And, and another, another one we did was um, John Piper's Desiring God with uh, our small group from church, which also really spoke into my life as far as uh, what's important. Both of those are outstanding uh, books. Good, good suggestions there. Could you tell us a few ways that that we could be praying for you and and for your your wife and your son and the work that's going on there? One of the uh, studies that we're doing as a, a complete missions group with with different organizations here, uh, we meet biweekly, and right now we're doing a study just on Sabbath rest, which uh, we're pretty early into it. But I think it's something that is is so big for what so many people here need to hear because it's so easy to see the need and think that you just need to work harder and work harder. But uh, to realize that that rest is important and it's a gift from God. And if you don't take it, you're really hurting yourself in the long run. So yeah, prayer for that would be much appreciated. And for the unity of the whole team here right now, it's it's incredibly awesome just to be part of the whole team and uh, I think is a big part of why so many different individuals are able to stay here as long as they do. I appreciate you sharing those things and, and I will certainly be praying for you in those areas and, and I know that the folks listening oh, uh, will as, as well. So how can people connect with you, Marcel, on social media or I think you mentioned a, a, a blog to learn more about you and your family and maybe even become a, a supporter of you in your, your ministry there in Angola? We have a, uh, a page that we uh, regularly update on Facebook. Uh, Marcel and Kelly serving with MAF is one way you can find that. And I think anytime we do a blog, we update it on there as well, which uh, if, you want, if you don't have Facebook, it's uh, marcelandkelly.blogspot.com. One other way uh, you can connect with us as MAF in Angola is simply mafangola.com. On Twitter or Instagram, you can see what the program is up to at mafangola. And personally, I have a couple of those accounts as well, at mborzi, if you think I'm that interesting of a person. Well, I think you're interesting, so we'll, <laughs> we'll definitely share those. I'll, I'll, we'll have show notes with that go along with this podcast. And I'll, I'll include some of those, those links in the, in the show notes. So, so folks who want to connect with you will have a, have the way to. Sounds great. Well, Marcel, I do want to thank you so much for, for joining us today. I appreciate your 
uh, open conversation about the, the things that we have that we've asked you about and and the informative uh, things that you have told us about the the sort of work that you're doing there and 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 about how you got there in the first place I, one of my purposes for this show is uh, so that young men and women who are are feeling called to to missions work in general or maybe particularly to missionary aviation can hear stories from individuals like you and 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 get some guidance in their own uh, walk toward uh, the mission field. So I do appreciate you sharing today. Oh, my pleasure. Happy to be here. And I, and I hope that you and I can stay in touch and talk to one another again really soon, okay? Okay, sounds good. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed hearing from Marcel as much as I did. I think it was good for us to hear from someone who is serving in missionary aviation in a role other than a pilot. He certainly brought a slightly different perspective to the show this time. If you are enjoying these episodes, please take a few minutes and share them with your friends and family on social media. Also, I'd really appreciate you heading over to iTunes and leaving us a review there. You can do so by going to plainfaith.com review. Again, that's plainfaith.com slash review. And if you'd like to be a part of bringing these episodes to others, please consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com slash plainfaith. Patreon.com slash plainfaith. I have a few different reward levels set up, some that include giveaways like Plain Faith stickers and flight suit patches and even Plain Faith t-shirts. You can become a patron for as little as $1 an episode and your support will help me do some cool things with the show that I have in mind. I look forward to being back with you again in a couple of weeks. Until then, may God bless you and your families. Well, that's it for this episode. We thank you once again for listening. You can learn more about the podcast and subscribe to it by visiting plainfaith.com. That's P-L-A-N-E faith.com. You will also find links there to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you are interested in becoming a patron of the show, you can do that as well by visiting patreon.com forward slash plain faith. And of course, Jimmy would love to hear from you personally. So feel free to email him at jimmy at plainfaith.com or by using the contact form on our website. Until next time. Remember that God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The intro and outro music for the Plain Faith podcast is a song called Chipper by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.com.